you turn your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, the Savior Saga, part 6, last week the early life of Jesus, this week the ministry of John the Baptist. And I want to begin this morning by reminding you that the Lord is very efficient in His ways. And sometimes we kind of look at these historical elements of Scripture and we kind of wonder why they're there. It's like, is it really necessary to talk about all of these Roman rulers? Is it really necessary to look uh, at the lineage and the genealogies? You know, if you read your Old Testament, there's times when you just start going through it, and you're like, oh, man, if I have to have another begat of somebody, I'm going to die. But they're very important for establishing dates and times and points in history, and nothing is more important to establish clearly than the birth of Jesus, because his coming was foretold in the Old Testament. And if this period can't be accurately pinned down, we have a problem with the book of Daniel. And so this is extremely accurate, and the reason that the Holy Spirit encourages Luke to write these words so that we would have it is because we will have a historical record of exactly when Jesus' 30th year was. And so this morning, uh, the teaching of John the Baptist's ministry there in the River Jordan, would you pray with me as we study his word? Father, thank you uh, for your amazing detail. Lord, how you have laid out uh, in your word for us so clear and with such pinpoint accuracy these things that are important to us. Lord, if they could be measured to be not true, then we would question whether your word is true. And yet they are true. And these rulers did exist in exactly the places uh, that you have declared them in your word. And so, Lord, we ask you to minister to us by the power of your word. Help us to receive it with gladness. Lord, change us, mold us, shape us by the power that is within us, because you reside in us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Verse 1 here in Luke 3, And now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee. That word tetrarch means quarter. It's a quarter ruler. And what happened during the reign of Diocletian, is that he realized the Roman Empire was too large to be governed from a single place, much like we have states that have local rule. He established the Tetrarchy, and the Tetrarchy divided up basically the Roman world into four segments, and they were governed at this time by the children of Herod the Great. And so it gives us a very clear historical window and so Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of Ituria, and in the region of Tacronitis, and Lyonisus, the Tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas, by the way. And while Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so he goes on to say, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. So here is the story. We have identified very clearly, and we'll get to some of the details in a moment, a period of time where this wild man for Jesus 
John goes into the region of the Jordan, and I need for you to understand geographically where this is. And so when we're talking about this region, it's the region south of the Sea of Galilee, between the exit from the Sea of Galilee to the input uh, where it flows into the Dead Sea. It's a region approximately 65 miles long. Uh, you can get there from Jerusalem to the Jordan, the southern parts of it, in a day's journey. It is the region adjacent to uh, what we would, we would call right now the Palestinian territory, specifically the West Bank. And so John is going to minister in this region. It's widely believed historically that he traveled up and down the Jordan River. He didn't necessarily stay in one place until he finally comes to this place, which is now marked by an actual uh, national park, the place of John's baptism. And so if you go there, uh, it's kind of commercialized like Disneyland. You show up, and there's 45 buses, and they're all parked in a row, and you can go rent a robe to go be baptized in. And there's concrete steps and guards from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, and you can go there and be baptized. But when we think of the Jordan, we kind of think of this really lush, beautiful, that area of the Jordan is quite desolate. And you would wander across basically like if you've been to the Colorado River here in Southern California, it's a whole bunch of nothing with a little tiny strip of green belt right next to the water. That's the Jordan that John is baptizing in. It's not some lush garden. It is a place where people would go to get water, to go back to their little farms. It would be close to the area, but it was very near a day's journey from Jerusalem. And so he is preaching in the region of the Jordan, likely the whole of it, all the way from Galilee south to the Dead Sea, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And so very important now that you realize what was said by Isaiah the prophet, written down in 686 or so B.C., uh, comes true. Why is that important? Because these words that follow, we have a very wonderful copy of them. If you hear the phrase, the shrine of the book, which is in Israel, you can go there. It happens to be a copy that now resides in there because the real one is too precious to actually put on display. But it is a copy of the real one. The real one exists, the entire book of Isaiah in a single scroll about 53 feet long. And so these words that were penned by the prophet Isaiah, we have a copy of that was extant, existing before Jesus came to this earth. By at least two centuries, that particular copy. And so we know these words were written before John the Baptist prophesied one word in the region of Galilee and in the Jordan Valley. So he said, the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, point directly at Jesus. Nobody else. For every valley shall be filled, and every mountain hill brought low, and the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough valley smooth, and see all flesh shall see the salvation of God. How many names under heaven are there whereby men may be saved? One. So when he says these words, he's talking about the anointed one, 
the Messiah of the Jews, the salvation that would come to the Gentiles, though it went to the Jews first. He's talking exactly about one person that was foretold in the Old Testament who would be the Messiah. There is absolutely no question who John is prophesying about. There is no question what his intent is. And we're going to get the details of it. And so this new day dawns. And remember, Jesus and John are born just three months apart. They're actually related. And so John is now out doing the work of the Lord in an area that you would think, if you were going to get the word out about the Messiah, you and I would do it in a center of population. Amen? Not so with the Lord Jesus and not so with his plan. And here's, I believe, why. This would have been nearly impossible to do in Jerusalem. There would have been such an uproar from Caiaphas, from Annas, from the family of priests, from all those who ministered in the temple, that likely John would have gotten very few words out. It would have simply been, go arrest him. We're going to try him on trial for heresy. We're going to throw him in jail. And so God in his infinite wisdom sends John to a place to where people, though they have a Jewish history, they're not keyed in to the Jewish religious leadership. They're actually reading their Bibles, if you will. They actually are hearing the word of the Lord without all of the spin put on by the Sadducees, which would be the Libertine group, and the Pharisees, which would be the Legalist group. And so John is out in the middle of nowhere but he's going to throw the world's first crusade. And so we have some history here that I'll share with you. And he's about to speak. Remember, God's been silent from Malachi to the, to the writing of Matthew's gospel, which was likely the first gospel, but Luke followed certainly right after that. And so here, here is this prophet that's going to speak. Remember, God hasn't had a prophet on the earth for 400 years. I love the fact that the only thing that comes forth from the next prophet is the salvation of Christ and the command to repent. And so it's very, very concise. Remember the Jewish religion, if you will, is one of the most complex religions that's ever been on the earth. The dictates of the Jewish religion are unbelievably strict, stringent, and they're impossible to follow. And so this is the antithesis of that. That's, this is the opposite side. And so here you have all of these men, and Caesar Augustus is dead. His stepson Tiberius had replaced him on the throne of the Roman Empire. By this time, the Roman Empire uh, spanned an area from what is now modern-day Spain all the way up into possibly as far north as Britain, across much of Europe, and all the way over to what would be uh, basically Iran now. And so the Roman Empire is absolutely huge. And of course, if you look at the distance between this region of the world and Rome itself, it becomes very obvious why there's a tetrarchy, why they've quartered it up and said, okay, you take this part and I'll take that part. But in essence, these men were co-leaders, co-regents. And so the capital city of Rome at that time, probably in the neighborhood of at least two million people. A huge city, and they're clamoring for more of everything. One of the most debauched cities on the face of the earth that's ever existed. Uh, they lived for the circus. They would simply go down and watch people 
uh, whose lives would be forfeited for their fun. Murdered, killed, fed to wild beasts, dragged underneath chariots, chariot race. That was the day and time of Caesar Augustus. At that time, Rome had a standing army of 350,000 men. They had at least 5,000 ships of war. Not like our battleships, but smaller by significant amounts. But capable of taking uh, sometimes as many as 100 to 150 soldiers on board. So this is a huge ability to move their armor around the, the known world at that time. Uh, Tiberius, uh, one of his sons, uh, replaces him. Uh, he hated the Jews. And if you go to Israel today, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, the largest city in the north-central part of Israel is the city of Tiberias. It was the headquarters of Tiberius, who was the co-regent, co-emperor. If you go there, the Roman baths are still there that Tiberius himself uh, spent time floating around in. This, this area of time, uh, St. Ignatius, Clement of Rome, Tacticus, Hippolonius, uh, all of these amazing Roman historians recorded this period of time very clearly, very concisely, going on and following through with Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Flavius Josephus. This is without question one of the most well-documented periods of history in the ancient world. Why? Because Romans were exceedingly prideful, and they wanted everybody to know exactly what they did, what they accomplished, where they did it, and we, as the body of Christ, are beneficiaries of their accuracy, because we know exactly when these people lived. Herod the Great's dead, his two heirs, if you travel through Israel today, uh, Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee in that region. He gives it to his sons. It's Philip, his half-brother, uh, was actually the best of all of the uh, sons of Herod, and he's the one who actually founded uh, Philip, Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north of Israel, very near the Syrian border, just about 30 miles away. And so Philip makes his abode, so you have down here in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee and a little further north and above on the Jordan River, actually where the springs of Dan are, where the Dan River flows into the Jordan, is Caesarea Philippi. Right now, his ruins of his palace are right next to a bus parking lot for the springs of Dan. So if you go, you can pull in in your bus and, ah, this is where Philip, oh yeah, he must have been down there swimming. You can go there. Lionysus Pilate, very well known when you go to Jerusalem today. Um, the history of Pontius Pilate is clear. And so we have, through principally the writings of these Roman historians like Eusebius, uh, all of this modern, this modern history that we can look up on the Internet, you can pull these people up and you can go, wow, the, I mean, we know lots of detail about these people. Now I want you to notice something that he's preaching a very unpopular message. It's still unpopular today. It's the message of repentance. It's not the message of, well, just get in touch with your inner self. It's not the message of, well, we just have to be more tolerant. It's not the message of, we need to be more accepting. It's not the message of, well, the Bible isn't meant to be taken literally. It's not the message of, we should have more bowling alleys in churches. 
It's not the message of anything save what saves. In family of God, I want you to understand something. That not popular message is still the message that saves. It's repentance. I nicham. I repent before the Lord. If you have not repented, you are not saved. That is an unpopular message. There is no salvation without repentance. You cannot keep your sin and say that you love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Now, it doesn't mean you need to be perfect in the implementation of that repentance, but you must repent to be saved. You have to forsake. You have to move on. And John gives this message. It didn't matter whether you were a prince or a plowman, a priest or a publican. It didn't matter if you were a Sadducee, a Pharisee, a rabbi. It did not matter. The message was the same. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ is coming. You cannot stay the same and believe that you're saved. Because you're not. Religion saved no one. Repentance saves. Salvation comes by repentance. And let me express this to you in the way that it actually is laid out in Scripture. The Hebrew word that's transliterated into Greek, the Hebrew word necham, means something very different than what we think of repent. We think of repent very often. A vast majority of the world thinks this, I'm sorry I got caught. Boy, I wish I hadn't got caught. Boy, now I'm going to suffer something really bad. I'm sorry I got caught. And so... We repent this way. Well, I'm not going to do that because I don't want the penalty of what's going to happen because I got caught. That is not repentance. That's sorrow of heart. It can be useful for pointing you towards true repentance, but it's not repentance in and of itself. What repentance is, and the word that's used here has actually five different definitions in Scripture, but it means strong emotional distress and relief as if you sighed and you went, Oh, I'm sorry. It's here. It's not here. It's your heart. It's not just your head. It's not just an acknowledgement that something wrong. It is saying, I agree with God and I can't keep doing this. The scope goes like this. It means repentance, as I just expressed to you. But it also means to grieve. The book of Genesis records it that way. The book of Judges records it as pity. It records it in the Psalms as a change of mind, and it records it furthermore as relenting. So that word means something very different than I got caught, and I'm sorry because I'm probably going to go through something that's not good. In other words, it's not simply acknowledging that God is God and He's going to whoop you. It's saying, I agree with God and I'm grieved over what's going on in my life, and I want to turn around, and I'm going to relent. 
So here's what I think it means. It means to agree with God's assessment of where we are. It means to agree with God's assessment of where we are. Jeff, you're wrong. Yeah, that's not right. It's to agree the way you were going is wrong. It's to be fully, completely, without holding back, sorry that you're going that direction. It's to take pity on yourself and say, Lord, unless you help me, I'm toast because I need the power of the Spirit because this has held power over me. It's to take action seeking the mercy of the Lord. Lord, please don't give me what I deserve. You all know this principle. Probably as you were younger, how many of you thought, as you knew you were wrong, and as was typical in my day and time, mom was home, dad was at work, wait till your father gets home. Man, are you in trouble. And so what do you do? Dad pulls up in the car, and our old four-fairlane station wagon, you could hear it from about two miles away. Pulls in the driveway. You're already, your, your backside's already throbbing. You haven't even been touched yet. And he comes in. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. Don't give me his... Go get the belt. Don't give me his bacon. You're asking for mercy. Amen? Because you did it. You deserve it. The swats, by the way, will never kill the child. Scripture actually says that we are to discipline our children as, stro- as strongly as is necessary. Not beat, not cause harm, get attention. Look, you can't keep going this way. It's to cry out for God's mercy. It is to change your mind about what you were doing permanently. You, you, you see... It's not just being sorry. It's saying, God, I can't change unless you help me change. It's, God, please don't give me what I deserve because I deserve it. That's very different than, well, if you just... You ever listen, little kids especially, and I think our country now, it's like when you listen to the congressman stand before a mic, nothing's their fault. Amen? Nothing is their fault. Well, you know, it was President Obama, or well, it's the Senate, or well, it's the Congress, and then the states wanted this, and the people, and they called me on the phone, and it's not my fault. That's not repentance. That's called blame shifting. Blame shifting is not repentance. Blame shifting is saying, it's my fault. I deserve to be in trouble. I thank you, God, that that is likely not going to happen in in as extreme a way as it possibly could. I agree with you, and oh, by the way, I was going that way, and now I'm going to go this way. It's turning around. It's doing a 180. It's going the opposite direction. Whatever you were doing before, do it the other way. That was John's message. Verse 7 And then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, a brood of vipers. I love this. One of my favorite sayings in all of Scripture. This is how you win friends and influence people. When they show up at your baptism, brood of vipers. Sack of snakes. 
slimy, rotten, serpentine, evil, vile. You see, at this day and time, this was this was the equivalent of calling somebody, you know, the snake's belly and the wagon runt. You 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 are the lowest of the low, the scummiest of the scum, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is the world's first crusade. He says, first, I came for the baptism of repentance. That's my message. And oh, by the way, don't you dare bring your false religious attitudes down here with me. Notice what he says. And do not begin to say to yourselves, for we have our, our father Abraham. But what he says is, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. When I say to you that Jesus said we are actually to judge people, and I want to make this very clear, Jesus said we are actually to judge people, and anyone who tells you differently does not know what their Bible says. It says judge not unless by the same manner you yourselves will be judged also. He didn't say don't judge. He says make sure that you measure out your judgment correctly. Don't judge falsely. Don't judge harshly. He did not say don't judge. He said judge equivalent to the knowledge you have, the understanding you have, the way that Scripture declares we are to judge rightly and correctly. He went on then to say, by the fruit of their life you shall know them. Judge what kind of fruit comes out of their life. If it's rotten fruit, judge the fruit, not the person, not their place in heaven, the fruit we are to judge. And we are to judge with the same measure of judgment that your Bible says. So when your friend comes to you and says, well, I think I'm perfectly okay living with my girlfriend, you can say, no, you're not. Well, you're judging me, man. Yes, I am. Because God's Word says I am to judge the fruit of your life, my Bible says that sin, it will destroy you and her. So I am accurately judging in a way that's appropriate. I'm not judging whether you're worse than me or better than me or different than me. I'm simply saying, because I love you, this is sin in your life. That type of judgment. So the next time someone said, you're judging me, I said, well, my Bible actually says I am actually supposed to judge those things in your life that don't stack up to the Word of God. Not with your sinometer. <laughs> wow, that's a seven and a half. But the fruit of their life. If that person names the name of Christ, they ought to be living like Christ. Amen. Part of our problem in our world is people who name the name of Christ don't live like Christ. They live like everyone but Christ. And so he preaches. I'll begin to say to you, we have Abraham our father. See, that's where people go, amen? Well, I have love. I just love. I only like the words of Jesus. Forget Paul. He was kind of hard. These guys were coming, well... I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham. And so naturally, I'm holy. doesn't work. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham even from these stones. Can you imagine? What a popular message. Look, you guys are dumb as rocks. See these stones over here? 
These are as good as being related to Abraham. That's what he's saying. And even now the axe is laid to the root of trees, and therefore every tree which does not, notice it, talk about judging, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's why he says, go bear fruit that's worthy of repentance. Go do what's necessary to show the entire world that your life has changed, you meant what you said. Don't come back here and tell me you're okay with God and you're doing the very same things that you were doing last week. You're just wrapping it up in the fact that you're related to Abraham. You've heard me say frequently and often, coming to this church doesn't save you. Coming to this church doesn't save you. Repenting and believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and inviting Him in your heart to be your Lord and your Savior. Lord means Master. That saves you. And if you do that, He's not leaving you the way you used to be. You're not going to be comfortable in your sin. And that's why when someone comes, well, you know, I just think God told me it's okay. Then you make Him a liar according to His Word, and His Word, if you're right, He's wrong, His Word's no longer true. I hate to tell you this, His Word's true, and you are the liar. Not a popular message, still not popular today. But it's still true today. And we need to preach the message today. In love, yes, of course. Of course. As lovingly as we possibly can, we need to tell people, look, if you declare that you're a homosexual, and you say that it's okay with God, you disagree with God. Not with Jeff. You disagree with God. You make him a liar. And the fruit of your life is indicative that you are not his child. Doesn't mean that we hate you. Doesn't mean I hate you. It means that you're not repentant. That you don't understand that what his word says, he means, and you have to do it. It's not an option. Same thing is true, by the way, for a drunk. The same thing is true for a fornicator. The same thing is true for an idolater and a liar and a bitter person and a hateful person and a spiteful person and an unforgiving person. If you want to cling to your unforgiveness and your hate, you want to cling to your lying and you will not forsake it, you are saying with your fruit that you don't know Him. So be careful. Because very often this message, because it's not popular, goes unheeded. And if you can feel comfortable in your sin, it doesn't bother you. You don't go, man, I'm really struggling with this. In Jesus' name, if you're struggling, you're on the right path. But if you're not struggling, you need to be very concerned about where you stand with Jesus. That was John's message. That's why he said, bring forth fruits. I want you to notice who he was talking to. We don't get it here. We get it from Matthew's Gospel. Exact same verse. Matthew 3, verse 7, by the way. He's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They're name by name by Matthew. I love this. Who were they? They were the top dogs of organized religion. 
This is John speaking to the religious orthodoxy and the leadership of it of the time. He says, oh, no. Don't you come down here with your libertine ideas, speaking to the Sadducees, and your legalistic ideas, speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you go first and do works of repentance. You go get with God and change the way you live. Then come back here when you have decided that you're wrong. And you agree with God. Very important we make that distinction. Basically, he was saying what James 1.22 says. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only, deceiving yourself. He says, go do it. Don't tell me about it. Go do it. Don't hang it all on love. Go do it. Be who God made you to be. He didn't make you to be a cesspool of sin. Clean up your act. The people were convicted by his crusades as we move on to verse 10. I think we can wrap this up. And says, so the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? I love this. And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give one who, to one who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized. He said to them, teacher, what shall I do? He says to them, don't collect any more taxes than what was appointed to you. And likewise, the soldiers came saying, what shall we do? Do you get the question? you get the question? Everyone in their own place in life came to him and said, well, what about me? The principle applies to everyone. Notice how John responded. He's saying, man, you're somebody who's a little greedy. You own the, the local tunic shop. You got more than you need, go give one to somebody. Because to see that your brother has need to do nothing says that the love of God's not in you. That's what your Bible says, by the way. It says the same thing about you. When you see that your brother has need and you harden your heart, how can you say that the love of God dwells in you? So when that person is hungry, that's why we do the food outreach that we do here. It's a practical application of saying, look, Lord, we heard what you said, we're going to do it. We're not questioning it. Do it. And so he says to them, and so he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. He just applies it across the board. He said, if you're messing up, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you, if you're messing up and you know that God's Word says this, please go do exactly that. And don't make excuses why you can't. Just do it. Nike stole that. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> they were convicted. Each one of them's asking the question, what about me? What about me? What about They're popping up. They're standing there. It's like Billy Graham. I see that hand on the upper balcony. You know, he's doing the same thing. You. Oh, you're probably, yeah, same deal. Some of them were confused. Verse 15. And now as the people were in expectation, they're starting to listen. They're hearing the message. They're going, man, this is, this is life-changing. I thought it was all about being a Jew. I thought it was all about going to church seven days a week, by the way. Devout religious Jews go to the temple seven days a week. They even go in the morning on Sabbath and then go home and spend the day with their family. Because they want to make sure they got the Sabbath covered. 
And they all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. I love this. And John answered, saying to all, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but the one who is mightier than I, he is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says, Look, I'm just telling you about the real deal. It is not me. There's one who's coming after you. You see, this baptism that I'm doing right now is so that you can repent. The one that's coming after is so that you can have power and purpose. He says his winnowing fan is at hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He's looking at the threshing floor. And this analogy, if you go to Israel today, you can still find threshing floors all over Israel. There is typically, sometimes they're large, sometimes they're small. But an ox would be tied to the threshing floor and sometimes just with a ball and a chain, a couple of rocks, and just walk around the threshing floor. The grain would be brought in, and then the grain would be taken off the threshing floor, and then the chaff, what was left over that was useless, would be usually picked up and burned for cooking inside the home. And God's saying, every last grain... I will lose none of them that are mine, Jesus said. No one can snatch them out of my hand who are mine. You see what he's saying is, God knows when he's winnowing, he knows the last grain on the threshing floor. He knows the ones who are his and the ones who aren't. And notice what he says. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather up the wheat into his barn. In other words, anyone who knows the Lord Jesus goes to heaven. But the chaff you will burn with unquenchable fire. You're a saint or you're an ain't. You're not in between. You're not, well, they're a saint in waiting. That would be an ain't. Okay? Saints, ain'ts. Ins, outs. Saves, not. There's no place in between. There, there is nothing taught in Scripture that says, well, I'm kind of, sort of, and I can work it out in the afterlife. I'll spend about 20, 30 billion years in purgatory and I'll be fine. It says you're either wheat or you're a tare. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. You are in, you are out, you are second birth, no second death, or you're no second birth and second death. That's it. Two kinds of people. Those who are going to heaven and those who aren't. And there is no one in between. There's no place for the in between. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. You see, he's baptizing with water. He's immersing them in the Jordan River. By the way, he's not sprinkling them. He's, the word that's used here means to immerse fully. It's a reason that we don't baptize for any other reason than someone has repented and received Christ. That's why we don't believe that baptizing babies has any effectiveness. Because a baby has no chance to repent. They have no idea what's going on. Baptism, as it's taught in Scripture, simply means to agree with God and to publicly declare that you agree with God. You see, he was saying that the Spirit was going to come. The power of Jehovah was going to fall on them. You see, and as John was thrown into prison and as he's thinking on these things, you can only imagine what he, what he went through. John is going to be arrested next, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias. Now think of this. Notice what Scripture has said and how I've repeated it to you. No one was exempt 
from John's preaching, not even Caesar. You talk about boldness. You talk about not even my own kids. Not even my parents. Not even my wife. Not the President of the United States. Nobody is exempt from the truth of God. They may not want to hear it. They may not receive it. But the message cannot be changed. I have sat with grieved family after grieved family who dared to change the message because it was uncomfortable for their kids. Well, I don't want to, you know, and I'm not saying be mean-spirited and angry. I'm simply saying if your kids are in sin, you need to tell them they're in sin. If your parents are perishing and going to hell, it's not the time for you to try and dance around the issue. Mom... If you do not receive the Lord Jesus Christ before you take your last breath on this earth, if you do not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to perish eternally. doesn't matter that your mom was an organist in the Methodist Church for 25 years. Because you're related to Abraham means nothing. And so... Concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So Herod the Tetrarch, another son of Herod, also a Tetrarch, co-regents in Rome, living in the region of Galilee. That's your brother's wife. What are you doing? Notice what happens. And for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut up John in prison. John went to Machaerus. That's the prison at the time of the Herods. It's in modern-day Jordan. You can go there today. One of the most vile places that's ever been created by man to torture man. There is a place, and you've probably seen it, it's been snatched in a few movies, called The Well of Souls. Inside of that prison, the well of souls is a deep shaft. It's over 90 feet deep, carved into solid rock with a little tiny bell at the bottom. And if you were sent there and you were really bad, you were descended into that pit where no sunlight ever shone, where those who had to use the restroom used that pit. That's where John was likely held. Because he had the boldness to say, that's your brother's wife. you got no business being married to her. You see, his testimony would finish this way. And when all the people were baptized, that it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Better to be well pleasing to God than to be well pleasing to men. I can't wait to meet John. He's one of my heroes. 
We're going to see more of him later. But you talk about someone who had firm conviction that God was right. Someone who had firm conviction that the Lord was indeed being gracious and kind when he confronted people with their sin. That it was no kindness to tell somebody they're okay with God when in fact they're walking into the devil's trap. That was the message of John. And he preached it with everything, and it eventually cost him his life. But I guarantee you what he gave up on this earth, he sat in that hole for two years. Two years of living in the toilet of a prison. But I guarantee he's got a mansion in heaven. Because he spoke the truth. Amazing prophet. Amazing man. Amazing life to emulate. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the patience of your people to hear and to receive. And God, as we ponder these things, Lord, would we have that kind of boldness and conviction? Would we be convinced and convicted? Lord, would we have uh, even a sense of, of power as we speak the truth? Lord, we do want to be loving. But love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality. Lord, we want neither. Give us balance but help us to never sacrifice the truth. Lord, it's you, Jesus, that saves, and if we're truly repentant, we'll change. Maybe slowly, maybe arduously, but we will change. And I pray, God, for anyone who's here that's never believed on your name, who's never invited you into their lives. God, I pray that they would simply recognize this is the greatest decision they'll ever make. Lord, as long as we have breath on this earth, we have opportunity to know you. And so, Lord, would you convict those that may be here this day of that truth. Help them to seek prayer, Lord, to receive you this day. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for your truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.